1912, Herman Rorschach graduated college. Now, he was always a bit of a gifted man. He'd studied botany, geology. He'd studied French and Russian. But when he graduated, he graduated a doctor. And as he did this, he found his medical training intersecting with his childhood. He recalled those years growing up as a child, making artistic drawings with ink. And he began creating ink blots on cards. And he would take these cards and go to his job, and he'd show them to patients. And he'd record their response. This Rorschach test, now known as the Rorschach inkblot test, it's a psychological test. Test takers will observe a series of ink blots. Their responses are recorded. It's meant to reveal personality or emotional function and so on. Now, there's been much debate about their accuracy, but the point was to draw out what is inside, to get to the heart or to get to the core of that person. And I sometimes wonder if the parables of our Lord don't do something similar, only in in deeper ways, in more clear ways. You see, in the parables of our Lord, Jesus draws us in, and then he draws us out. Our response to his parables always points to our hearts. And that is, in fact, the point of the parables. At least in some ways, they're meant to evoke a response. They're meant to generate a response from the listener. We hear the parables of Jesus. We might experience peace. To hear how the the shepherd will go pursue that, that one sheep who strayed, leaving the other 99 behind, the parable of the lost sheep. We might experience anger at that unmerciful steward who's been forgiven so much only to go out and choke out those who owed him. The parable of the unmerciful servant. We might experience joy when the son, the prodigal son, returns to his father. It evokes an emotion, an experience. The parable of the prodigal son. You see, the parables of Jesus are are meant to do this. And the one that we explore this morning is is just the same. It does no less. We gaze this morning into the mirror of the parable of the landowner. And I believe that as we do, we will see something of ourselves. Our reactions to this parable will reveal what's inside. But more than that, better than that, we will see something of God in this parable. This is a parable about the Lord. And we will see God demonstrates a generous grace toward you. We need this reminder. In fact, the parable will will show our need. Because I believe as we hear this parable, it will in fact generate a response from within us. And I believe that along the way, it may even be the type of response we lament. Do you rejoice 
when God blesses other people, those less deserving, not as smart, not as hardworking, do you rejoice when God gives them blessing? How often do you say in your heart, maybe even in different language, that's not fair? Or how often do we fall back and revert to some system of works to earn God's favor? God is a God of grace, a God of unmerited favor, and he gives his love and his grace to those who do not deserve it. We need to be reminded of this grace because it is by this grace that we live all of the Christian life. I was even thinking about how how this passage falls where it does in Matthew's gospel. We know that Matthew's been recording the life or the ministry of Jesus in this gospel, the gospel of Matthew. And the Holy Spirit is superintending what he writes in his placement of accounts and stories. The past few weeks have been pretty rough. I mean, there's been no shortage of heavy, weighty topics, have there? In Matthew 19, we've covered no light reading, marriage, divorce, and singleness, parenting. Last week, it was the rich young ruler. What what a tragic case and timely reminder for 21st century American Christians. And as I reflect on these messages, I'm in perfect in my marriage. And I'm flawed in my parenting. And I have more than enough stuff at a house in the woods. So what's my hope? What is our hope? Grace. The grace of God. This is a high calling placed upon us to live for Jesus Christ. The only way to do it is by the grace of God we will find that the calling is indeed high, but the grace God gives is yet higher. It is infinite. Open up your Bibles with me to Matthew chapter 20. This is the account of the parable of the laborers in the vineyard. And God demonstrates a generous grace toward you. Now, once you find this chapter this morning, you can go ahead and take that chapter number and immediately discard it. The chapter break that happens between chapter 19 and verse 30 and chapter 20, verse 1, it's not well placed. Because our parable this morning is directly connected to what just happened in Matthew chapter 19. It's that exchange with the rich young ruler. And this matters because it impacts how we interpret the parable how we arrive at at the meaning Jesus intends. And hopefully that'll be clear in a moment. But for now, let's begin with the first seven verses of the parable. It begins in the morning. Matthew chapter 20, verse 1. For the kingdom of heaven is like a landowner who went out early in the morning to hire laborers for his vineyard. When he had agreed with the laborers for a denarius for the day, He sent them into his vineyard. And he went out about the third hour and saw others standing idle in the marketplace. And to those he said, You also go into the vineyard, and whatever is right, I will give you. And so they went. 
Again, he went out about the sixth and the ninth hour and did the same thing. And about the eleventh hour, he went out and found others standing around. And he said to them, Why have you been standing here idle all day long? They said to him, Because no one hired us. He said to them, You go into the vineyard too. Well, if in fact a parable is meant to evoke some emotion in us or to reveal something of our hearts, what have you experienced so far? Probably not a lot. These first few verses are intended to lay the foundation for what is to come. Jesus teaches about his kingdom, for the kingdom of heaven is like. There's that little word right there at the beginning of verse 1, the little word for, F-O-R. That's a very important word. Again, this word is connecting what is to come with what we just saw back in chapter 19. The little word has all kinds of functions in the New Testament. The word for can tell us the cause of something. It can tell us the reason for something. It can give us clarification. But here, it explains. It explains what came before. This little word begins one of our favorite Bible verses. For God so loved the world. What's Jesus doing there? He's explaining to Nicodemus salvation. Our parable explains chapter 19, verse 30. Many who are first will be last, and the last first. Jesus states that truth. He then goes on to illustrate that truth, to go on to further explain it. If you look down at chapter 20, verse 16, he will state that truth again. That is to say that our parable then must be interpreted in light of this truth. Jesus said it two times at the beginning and at the end of the parable. But I want to go back even further. I want to go back to Peter in verse 27, chapter 19, verse 27. And I believe it is his question that's prompted this entire discussion. Again, it was the account of the rich young ruler we saw last week. This rich young ruler has walked away from Jesus. And Peter asks the Lord, We have left everything and followed you. What then will there be for us? In other words, Peter observes that they've sacrificed so much to follow Christ. And they've been with him this whole time. And this young, rich young ruler has done None of these things. In fact, as his silhouette disappears on the horizon, he's leaving with all of the wealth and stuff he had when he came up to Jesus. Peter wonders, what about those who work hard? Jesus answers him in verses 28 and 29. Again, it's contrary to man's way of thinking. That's going to be verse 30. But Jesus has yet more to say. About us, yes, but more importantly, about God. He teaches this parable about the kingdom of heaven. And in the parable, different components of the parable represent different spiritual realities. For example, the vineyard is the kingdom of heaven. The landowner is God. The laborers are believers. And Jesus speaks of harvest time in his parable. For the landowner, his vineyard is ripe for harvest. 
The grapes are a deep red. They're a, they're a beautiful purple color. They're just the, the perfect sweetness with a hint of tartness. Now is the time for harvest, and the landowner needs help, and he goes off to the marketplace. We might describe the marketplace in the ancient Near East as the first century temp agency. It's where he went to find some help if he needed it for a day. There would be those needing work, and those needing to hire would be there as well. This still happens, by the way. Uh, Often migrant workers will be at a certain location looking for work for the day. When I lived in Phoenix, if you needed a guy for a day, you'd go to certain parts of town and you could hire him to work for you. But we should add as well, when we think about these laborers, that if they're in the marketplace looking for work, they are on the bottom rungs of society. These are not the well-to-do or or the wealthy of the culture. In fact, they're, they're very low. Their work Think about it. The work is day-to-day. If they even get hired, their, their income, food for the table, it's all dependent upon whether or not they're hired. Our landowner, he visits this place five times in our account. And the day of our account is divided into 12 parts. It's represented by hours. Roughly, this would be sunrise to sunset. You see, in verses 1 and 2, he recruits early in the morning. This is right around 6 a.m. The same word is used in a later account of the resurrection of Jesus. Mary Magdalene is out at this time of day. She's at the tomb. There we learn that it was still dark. So this is very early in the morning. In verse 2, they reach an agreement. Jesus approaches, or excuse me, the landowner approaches these workers, and he agrees to pay them a a denarius, one denarius. The agreement is made between the landowner and the workers. One denarius is about a day's worth of wages. In verses 3 to 5, he makes three more trips to the marketplace. We can count our hours now going from 6 a.m., The third hour would be maybe around nine. The sixth hour would be noon. The ninth hour is three o'clock, 3 p.m. On these latter trips, notice then the amount of payment given. Whatever is right. Would that make you a little nervous? If that's the offer given you to come work for an employer? I'll give you whatever's right. And by the way, on the other end, if you're an employer, this is not meant to be a business model. This is a parable. Jesus is communicating a spiritual truth. If you post a job that pays, quote, whatever is right, you're not going to get the people that you're looking for. In fact, you may get the people you're not looking for. And you're definitely going to have labor problems if you give part-time workers the same as full-time workers. But again, our Lord is not trying to teach us how to run a business. That brings us then to this 11th hour, 5 p.m., a really odd time to schedule staffing. There's one hour left in the workday. 
Questions abound here. Why, why did no one else hire these men? Are they older? Are they weaker? Are they less skilled? The landowner asks his own question, doesn't he? Why have you been standing here idle all day long? Verse 7, because no one has hired us. Well, he takes them and he sends them into the vineyard too. Well, so far, maybe this parable hasn't exactly unearthed any great revelations from the corners of your heart. Maybe you've cheered that early riser. There are guys in our congregation who wake up at like three in the morning. You like this guy. He's a hard worker. On the other end of that spectrum are those of you who have this. (laughs) You respond well to working one hour a day. You really cheer the guy who got in there at five and was off at six. Well, the sun has set. Verse 8, when evening came, the owner of the vineyard said to his foreman, call the laborers and pay them their wages, beginning with the last group to the first. When those hired about the eleventh hour came, each one received a denarius. When those hired first came, they thought that they would receive more, but each of them also received a denarius. Now ask yourself, how are you feeling? How are you feeling about this landowner? How about those guys that worked 12 hours? How about the guys that worked one? It's approximately 6 o'clock in the evening. The Old Testament instructed God's people, the Jews, to settle accounts at this time. Deuteronomy chapter 24, You shall not oppress a hired servant who is poor and needy, whether he is one of your countrymen or one of your aliens who is in your land, in your towns. You shall give him his wages on his day before the sun sets, for he is poor and sets his heart on it. Look carefully at the end of verse 8. Look at the order for payment that day, who's getting their paycheck and when they're getting it, beginning with the last group to the first. Hold on a minute. Those who are working the longest should get paid first. Those who have been working the longest should get paid most. But things in the kingdom of God are not as they are in the kingdoms of men. Remember those two verses that bookend our passage. The last shall be first and the first last. And not only that, but those hired about the 11th hour each received a denarius. That was the promise made to those early risers. That was their agreement. They'd been laboring all day long. In fact, in this passage, it is only they who are promised a wage, and that is it. This must be pretty good news for those latecomers, the 11th hour guys who are getting a denarius, if that's true for them. This is great news for the guys who've been there all day. If the guys that have been there one hour are getting a full day's wage, we are getting 12 times that much. Well, hallelujah is not what they said. If this happened in our day, somebody's getting sued. You can hear these guys 
out by the bins of grapes in the warehouse forming a union. When those hired first came, they thought they would receive more, but each of them also received a denarius. What do we say? That's not fair. The Israelites ate manna in the wilderness. Supposed freedom and slavery, they ate fish and cucumbers and melons. God redeemed Ninevites. These pagan idolaters, enemies to the people of God, a disgruntled Jonah answered him, saying, I have good reason to be angry. And the prodigal son protests, for so many years I've been serving you, and I've never neglected a command of yours. That's not fair. Pandemics, wars, taxes, elections, the middle seat, the long line, the wrong order, my schedule, my pay, my boss, my life, my love, my loss. I think the average human body is 60% water. I assure you it is 100% entitlement. And even if we can gain some victory over that entitlement, we are going to be entitled to keep that victory. These people working all day felt entitled for more. If the hour guy gets a denarius, we get 12. And what do they do? They take it up with the boss. Verse 11. When they received it, they grumbled at the landowner, saying, these last men have worked only one hour, and you have made them equal to us, who have both borne the burden and the scorching heat of the day. But he answered and said to one of them, Friend, I am doing you no wrong. Did you not agree with me for a denarius? Take what is yours and go. But I wish to give to this last man the same as to you. Is it not lawful for me to do what I wish with what is my own? Or is your eye envious because I am generous? So the last shall be first. And the first last. By now, you should be sensing something in your heart. Maybe it's injustice that these part-timers got the same as the full-timers. Maybe it's justice that the landowner had, in fact, honored his agreement. Well, verse 11 begins with an earful from the workers. Notice at this point in the account that they're alone. The 11th hour workers are already gone. Presumably so were the 9th and the 6th and the 3rd workers. They've been paid. They're gone. The last shall be first and the first last. And they grumbled at the landowner. That fierce animal in the human heart entitlement. He has been aroused from his slumber. That's not fair. Do you hear their case though? They bore the burden and the scorching heat of the day. They had labored in that vineyard all day long. It's hot. It's dry. It's direct sunshine. It's no shade. They're breathing the dust of the beaten paths as they've walked between the grape vineyards. The, the dirt is caked on their sunburnt, sweaty faces. These last men have worked only one hour, they say, and you have made them equal to us. Give me what I deserve. 
Do you see the problem with God as the landowner? May we never get what we deserve. May we never get what is fair. Jesus saves us from what we're entitled to. And while this parable shows us something of our hearts, again, it shows us much about God, the generous grace of God. It's been building. These last four verses instruct us practical application. I want to follow three questions by the landowner. Verse 13, he answered and said to one of them, Friend, am I doing you no wrong? Did you not agree with me for a denarius? Verse 14 goes with it, I believe. Take what is yours and go, but I wish to give to this last man the same as to you. I want us to see first here that that grace outperforms law. Grace outperforms law. These full-timers, they feel gypped, don't they? Their cry in verse 12 is is a cry of injustice. We did the same work. We did more work but we got, we got the same pay. Now, you and I know that the landowner is supposed to be God. I've already tipped my hand a bit in this message, so it's easy to take his side at this point. But still, there, there's something that seems unjust. It feels like there's some injustice happening in this account. And I think, I think, that's because law comes easier for us. Law and justice, the lines are clearer. It's more black and white. There's, there's rules and there's lines. Grace is, is, is harder for the human being, I think. But, but truth be told, we also know that justice was served. We've read about that. These full-timers, they received what they agreed to, did they not? In verse 2, they agreed to a denarius. In verse 12, they received, or excuse me, verse 10, they received a denarius. The landowner came under no new contract with the full-timers simply because he brought in part-timers and decided to pay them a gracious wage. His generosity, his sovereign grace, it also revealed their hearts. This is important to us. The grace of the landowner, it casts a light upon dark hearts. It showed us what lied beneath the surface of these full-timers. He chose to extend grace. And they grumbled about that. They became jealous. They became selfish. When we grumble, when we cry, that's not fair. We've set aside grace and we've taken up the law. We've forgotten that at the end, all we deserve is nothing for all of our lives is lived by grace. Our workers wanted law. They wanted justice. They forgot that it was sheer grace that even put them in the field to begin with. Secondly, he asks, is it not lawful for me to do what I wish with what is my own? Here we see that grace resides with God. Grace resides with God. That is to say that grace originates with God. Grace flows from God. Grace is God's to freely give. In 1 Peter chapter 5, verse 10, Peter calls him the God of all grace. 
It's like he's looking for a word to describe God. There's so many, what am I going to say? Grace. Gracious is an attribute of God. It's a characteristic of who he is. It's something that is true about God. When we say that God is gracious, we are saying that God is a God of unmerited favor. That God is regularly, continually giving people things that they do not deserve. Perhaps it helps to create a contrast, to describe what God is not. Imagine a God, small g, who does not give freely. Imagine a God that you must please. You must please this God by saying the right things and doing the right things and thinking the right things. You must do them often enough and consistently enough. You must fill up a silo with good works And just as you go into a market and take out cash from your wallet to purchase a product, so it is with this God. Once you've stored up enough, once your cash is filled, then you can go and get something. This is not God. This is not who God is, and this is not how God operates. Because God possesses all things, he distributes all things, and he does so by grace by his sovereign choice. And this is great news for us because God's grace is not dependent upon our genetics or dependent upon our abilities or dependent upon how good we are at any given thing. Otherwise, it wouldn't be grace. The full-timers of today's parable, they grumble about this. They take issue with the amounts that are distributed and who gets them and how much they get. But what's the only accusation they can bring? God is too generous in that he distributes anything at all. God is gracious to you and God loves you. When the New Testament in particular speaks about the grace of God, it often speaks of Jesus Christ. In Ephesians chapter 1, verse 7, the Bible says, In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of his grace. Jesus died, and he rose from the dead, and he gave his life as a sacrifice for you. It was an act of grace. Jesus forgives your sins. Each of us have sin. We do things that are wrong. We break God's law. We break his commands. But if we confess our sins, Jesus forgives us. It's an act of grace. And we see in this verse that he does it all by grace. It's according to the riches of his grace. You know, I'd, I'd like to think that there's something good in me that God has looked down and said, you know what, I'd like to have him be part of my family. But that would be a lie because it would not be grace. Redemption is by God's grace. And that redemption through Jesus Christ has visited my life. I've shared with you how it can visit yours. Has it? Do you understand that you have sin and are in need of forgiveness? And that God will freely, graciously forgive you for that sin. You'll be made right with God and spend eternity with Christ in heaven by believing. 
One pastor said it this way, God deals with us according to who he is, not according to who we are. I want to revisit verse 15 to see this landowner's final question. Is it not lawful for me to do what I wish with what is my own? He then asks this, or is your eye envious because I'm generous? This is a stumbling block for those full-time workers. Literally, he asks, is your eye evil? Our English translations do capture it well. Some of your Bibles say, are you jealous? Do you begrudge? It is an expression for jealousy, the evil eye. And we know that God is a landowner, that Jesus is telling this parable, and he's moving closer to the core, closer to the heart. Back in verse 12, it seemed as though the issue there was injustice, but by verse 15, we see a deeper issue, it's jealousy. Our full-timers are comparing themselves to their part-timers, and it made them jealous. Comparing themselves did them no good. It's a good lesson for us believers. Don't compare yourself to others. In our parable, the landowner, he knew just what to give. Notice in our parable that he didn't give according to their work either. And that's very much like our Lord. Our Lord is far less concerned with our outward appearances. With, he, he is intimately interested in our hearts. That is to say that God is much more interested in our motives and our attitudes and our affections and our desires. Anything outwardly is going to be an overflow of those things. But he cares much more about a heart totally devoted to him and to his son, Jesus Christ. And that is to say as well that it doesn't matter what time God calls you. And it doesn't matter this morning how long you've labored or or if what you're doing is done well enough or if someone does it better. God knows just how much grace to give you. And he knows when to give it to you. He gives it generously. To quote a commentator, God's generosity transcends human ideas of fairness. No one receives less than they deserve but some receive far more. So don't worry about what other people are getting. Don't compare. God's grace is for you, and he knows just what to give and just when to give it. And it's true. The neighbors will have smarter kids. The guy who didn't deserve to get the promotion. All those things will happen in this life. But God's grace is for you. Don't compare. God's not going to withhold it from you either. That's worth mentioning. God is not that kind of a God. He does not withhold his grace from you. If you are a Christian, you have the unmerited favor of God upon your life. And that grace is placed there irrevocably. And it's placed there eternally. And it's abundant. That's our point. It's a generous grace given by God. So live this morning then in the light of that grace. And if you're looking into this parable as you're looking into a mirror and you're seeing things in your heart, whatever you're seeing, know God is gracious. His unmerited favor is upon your life. And if you live like you deserve nothing, the grace of God will mean everything to you. If you live like all you have is this generous gift of God's grace, it'll fundamentally change how you live your life. No more comparing No more jealousy, more contentment, 
and more peace. You can live your life in the generous grace of God. Go live by his grace. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, you are the master storyteller. And you can communicate to us deep and profound truths in ways that are clear and understandable, and we praise you for that. Thank you for showing us your Father. And we pray to you this morning, Father, thankful for grace. We pray that we would not only hear of it or become aware of it, but that would become our experience. That you would manifest your grace in our lives in deeply new and profound ways. That your children would know that you love them. That you are generous with grace. And that you are with them in grace. We pray, Father, as we sing of your grace, that you would prepare our hearts to receive the grace of the Lord's Supper. We love you and pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.